Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather in your presence this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would speak to us, hide me behind the cross. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspires would also be the spirit that instructs in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, today we are continuing in our three-part series of messages entitled Worshiping Our Creator, and today is our second installment in that series. And I wanted to begin by doing a brief review from last Sabbath study. And we began in Revelation chapter 14, verse six and seven, as was read in our scripture reading. And it's divided into four components. You can see it there on the screen. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth and the springs of water. And we emphasized the fourth part of the first angel's message is a clarion call to worship our creator. This is a global message that is to go to the entire world before Jesus comes, and it's a call to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. We said that this was a direct call and reference back to the Old Testament. The book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. Let's turn very quickly there in our review of last Sabbath's message. The fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we're familiar with this text. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, or made it holy. You'll notice the verbal parallel between these two that we've just read, Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, and Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. There are four verbal parallels. Do you see it there on the screen? The Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. One verb, three nouns, exact same order. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 is referencing the Creator God in the fourth commandment and calling us to worship the Creator that created the earth in six literal days. As we address the last Sabbath, that in 1844, Darwin completed a 189-page handwritten manuscript summarizing his species theory. Scholars refer to it as Darwin's 1844 sketch. And this is from John Baldwin. He says, thus, when Darwin in his 1844 manuscript sketch suggests that major biological forms developed over millions of years, 
God, in the same year, sends a special message to the world that he created the basic life forms in six days, not millions of years. So here it is, these two competing worldviews, one that came by naturalistic evolution and the other that came by the creator God in six literal, contiguous, consecutive, 24-hour periods similar to the ones that we experience today. Now, here is a question. Why is a literal six-day creation essential to Adventist theology? Is it essentially? You're probably like, come on, David. Six days, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, does it really matter? Isn't the main point that God created the heavens and the earth? Why is a literal six-day creation essential to Adventist theology? Now, I'm talking about the internal consistency of the theological framework that we call Adventism. Now, in my studies, I've had the privilege of studying different theologians that were seminal thinkers, and a couple weeks ago I did a sermon on the resurrection, and I referenced this man, Rudolf Bultmann. He was an early uh, 19th century theologian and had some thoughts that really framed liberal Protestantism to this day, and he didn't believe in the resurrection or the virgin birth or any miracle in the Bible because it conflicted with science. Now, I disagree with Rudolf Bultmann, but I respect his consistency. No miracles, because they conflict with science. There was another gentleman that responded to Rudolf Bultmann's theology, and this is typically what happens in the theological community. One person comes up with a claim and another one responds, and it was Wolfhart Pannenberg. These guys are all German, by the way. And he said that without the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian religion is not a valid religion. I agree with him. So does Paul, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that if Christ is not risen, then our message is in vain. Another translation says it's worthless. So he links the historical reality of the resurrection and the truth of Jesus as the Messiah as the same thing. Rudolf Bultmann says, oh, resurrection, no resurrection. Virgin birth, no virgin birth. It really doesn't matter. What really matters is the experience that we have. And what Pannenberg is saying is, look, if you don't have the resurrection, you have nothing. Now, building on or playing on Pannenberg's terminology, this is from David Shin. Here it is. I don't think anyone will ever quote me, but here it is. Without the historical reality of a literal six-day creation, Adventism is not a valid religion. Now, I want to be very sensitive to individuals that may have grown up in our community of faith, were born into Adventism like me. I'm the grandson of a pastor, so I'm third-generation Seventh-day Adventist. My wife is like seventh generation. And we were born into this, and the challenge is that sometimes you don't really appreciate what you have. You're trying to figure things out. So I want to be sensitive to that. If you were born into this church and you're still figuring things out, bear with me. And perhaps there's some that are here that are not a part of our community of faith or are new, and you're still wrestling with this idea. But 
bear with me, here is the internal consistency of the Adventist framework. I want to reflect on this very quickly with you. Why is it essential to have a six-day literal creation? And without this, Adventism is not a valid religion. Let's deal with the first one. Reason number one, the Sabbath. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. This is interesting because the Ten Commandments ground the validity of the Sabbath to creation. Why should we keep the Sabbath? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In other words, our whole reason and rationale for keeping the seventh day Sabbath is because of the previous six days that were before it. In other words, God did something in six days and then he rested. So therefore, we should work six days and rest the Sabbath. That is the whole rationale and reasons for keeping the Sabbath. If you take away a literal six-day creation, then the seventh day becomes meaningless. Why should we do anything on the seventh day? If these were eons of millions and hundreds of billions of years that God created the earth, why not go to church once every 70 years? That would be more accurate, perhaps, metaphorically. Why once a week? Why not once a year? Why not once in a lifetime? The whole seventh day doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, if the six days are not literal, then the seventh day is not literal either. You need to be consistent. Now, it's interesting because I have never met any person that interprets Exodus chapter 20 in a not literal way. In other words, thou shalt not kill, not literal. Sorry. Thou shalt not steal, not literal. Let me take your car. Thou shalt not commit adultery, not literal. I'm sorry. But suddenly, when we come to verse 11, we suddenly change hermeneutics and say, that is not literal. It doesn't make any sense. Now, you'll notice something interesting about our name, Seventh-day Adventist. Hmm. If you take away the literal nature of the creation week, we are not Seventh-day Adventists. Our identity is linked with a literal six-day creation. Now, this is from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, and last week I did not quote the spirit of prophecy, but this week I am, and I want to encourage you to read the chapter in the first volume of the Conflict of Ages series on a Sabbath afternoon, and there's a chapter in there that's called The Literal Week. I encourage you to read that, and this is from that chapter. Like the Sabbath, the week originated at creation and has been preserved and brought down to us through Bible history. God himself measured off the first week as a sample for successive weeks to the close of time. Like every other, it, cons it consisted of seven literal days. Six days were employed in the work of creation. Upon the seventh, God rested, 
and he blessed this day and set it apart as a day of rest for man. And I have this part italicized. But the assumption that the events of the first week required thousands upon thousands of years strikes directly at the foundation of the fourth commandment. What is the fourth commandment? The Sabbath. In other words, the six-day creation week is at the foundation and the rationale and the reasons for keeping the Sabbath. You take this away, and we have no reason to keep the Sabbath except for tradition. That's it. And if you want to go to a theology that is internally coherent and consistent from a traditional standpoint of view, it is the Catholic Church. There is no theology in the world that is more philosophically and theologically consistent than the Catholics. I would argue, on the other hand, there is no theology in the world that is internally consistent based on Scripture than Seventh-day Adventists. So the foundation of the Sabbath is locked with a literal six-day creation. Reason number two, salvation. Why is a literal six-day creation essential to Adventist theology? It has to do with salvation because the Bible teaches that when man sinned, death came as a result. But if you believe in the theory of evolution, you have to believe that death preceded sin. It turns the whole nature of salvation on its head. Death is not a consequence of sin according to the evolutionary paradigm. Death is the very means through which God creates life. Then why would Jesus come as a savior to save us from sin and death if he used death in the first place to create life? It does not make any sense. And this is from Schmidt. Mormon states that an evolutionary worldview implies that salvation cannot mean returning to an original state, but must be conceived as perfection, perfecting through the process of evolution. Evolution presupposes that we're getting better. Salvation implies that we're getting worse and degenerating, and it's all about restoration to bring us back to the state of Adam before the fall. But if you take an evolutionary paradigm, there is nothing to bring us back to because we were actually worse off back then. Evolution strikes at the very heart of what the gospel means and what the Savior came for. Reason number three, our picture of God. And I quoted this last Sabbath, Holmes Royston indicates that the process of evolution is extraordinarily wasteful and cruel, filled with predation, parasitism, selfishness, randomness, blindness, disaster, indifference, waste, struggle, suffering, and death. You can't believe that God is all-loving and all-powerful if you believe that God used evolution in the creation of man. You can believe in one or the other, but not both. If you believe that God is all loving, then you have to believe that God can't create instantly and that evolution is the best that he can do. He comes up with multiple drafts and then kills off the ones that don't meet status and then comes up with the final copy. God is all loving, 
but he, his hands are tied. Evolution is the best he can do. On the other hand, if you believe that God is all-powerful, and he can create instantly, but chooses to create through multiple instances and just decides to kill off multiple generations to come up with the final product, you can't believe that a loving God would do that, especially if he has the capability to do otherwise. You can believe in a God of love or a God that is all-powerful, but not both. Here's an interesting statement from Philip Clayton, a God who allows countless billions of organisms to suffer and die an entire species to be wiped out either does not share the sort of values we do or works in a world in a much more limited and indirect way than theologians have usually imagined. In other words, the geologic column, if interpreted as the product of millions of years of organic evolution guided by God, actually portrays the way Satan would develop life forms, not God. So here are the three reasons why a six-day literal creation is critical to Adventist theology. Number one, the Sabbath. Number two, salvation. And number three, our picture of God. Now you say, what do we do when my faith conflicts with science? Because as we stated last Sabbath, an evolutionary worldview is held widely by the scientific community and intelligent design and a literal six-day creation sounds like foolishness. How do we reconcile the conflict between science and faith? Now, I have a book in my library by Thomas Kuhn. It's entitled The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And this is a gentleman that graduated from Harvard with his PhD, brilliant man, and this is a reflection from Stanford University on the legacy of Thomas Kuhn. Thomas Samuel Kuhn is one of the most influential philosophers of science of the 20th century. Perhaps the most influential, his book, The Scientific Structure, or the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, is one of the most cited academic books of all time. His account of the development of science held that science enjoys periods of stable growth punctuated by revisionary revolutions. This book has sparked a debate within the scientific community. And in 1962, when he wrote this book, it started a broader conversation about the validity of science and its ability to interpret ultimate reality accurately. This is a physicist, a scientist, a man that has been educated at Harvard University, and he's looking down at science and indicates that there is a difference between the scientific model and ultimate reality. And he gives this illustration. Back in 1689, Sir Isaac Newton drafted a whole paradigm of how the universe works. Newtonian physics. And the Newtonian worldview held status as the scientific structure for interpreting ultimate reality for 300 years. Think about that. 300 years. Newtonian physics from 1689 onward is considered to be the science and anyone who thinks otherwise is considered uninformed and unintelligent. 
until in 1905, a gentleman by the name of Isaac Newton drafted the theory of relativity. And what he showed that that Newtonian physics does not work on the quantum level, meaning the subatomic level. In other words, Newtonian physics works in flying planes and so forth and things like that in the level that we function. But Einstein showed that that's the three-dimensional level. He said there is a fourth dimension. And on the fourth dimension, Newtonian physics goes out the window. Now, notice what this is showing. What this is showing is that the Newtonian worldview is wrong when it comes to explaining the subatomic level. So, in actuality, we have two conflicting paradigms the Newtonian physics and the Einstein's quantum physics. And these two, believe it or not, contradict each other. And what Thomas Kuhn is bringing out is, look, science is an an attempt at determining ultimate reality. And he's implying that, look, give it another 300 years. And perhaps there is another brilliant individual that comes along and says, there is a seventh dimension. (laughs) And Einsteinian physics doesn't work on that dimension, and neither does Newtonian physics. There's a whole other paradigm. And guess what? The whole scientific community will shift with that new scientific revolution. And the question is, are we going to sit around and shift every time science happens to shift? That is a fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves. And what Thomas Kuhn is bringing out is, look, science is not to be limited or not to be excluded from criticism because science itself goes through revisions. Interesting point. The history of science shows an incredible list of cases where science has changed its views and replaced former theories. This is the thesis that this Harvard-educated professor is bringing out. And this, believe it or not, is the current conversation in the scientific community. Now, let me give you a quick case of this. This is Watson and Crick in 1962. They won the Nobel Prize in physiology for discovering DNA. Do you remember this from elementary school or high school? What's interesting is that DNA and the discovery of DNA impacted evolutionary theory. Evolution has actually evolved. There's very few people today that believe in classical Darwinian evolution. In 1920, 1930, Darwinian evolution changed to neo-evolution, and then after the discovery in 1962, we're living now in a post-Darwinian evolutionary worldview. And Watson and Crick brought out that DNA contains information and is the most efficient means of capturing information. They say that you can hold all of the species that ever existed on planet Earth 
the information of that in a teaspoon of DNA. It's 100 million species, according to one account. A teaspoon of DNA. And according to this Oxford scholar, in his seminal work and influential article, Life's Irreducible Structure, the code-like structure of DNA with all its information regulating the growth of an organ acts on the organism like an engineer acts on a machine. It would seem to me that this model places design, not descent, from DNA as the primary influence in morphogenesis. Morphogenesis means the beginning of structure or biological structure. What he's saying in layman's terms is that DNA indicates intelligent design. Now, classical Darwinian evolution believes that it spontaneously began, but what DNA shows is that that information had to come from somewhere. So this is what Crick postulates. This is a scientist who is an evolutionist, and this is what he believes. Are you ready for this? Crick believed, this is the Nobel laureate that won the Nobel Prize. Crick believed that bacteria about one micron wide and two microns long were packaged and put aboard a spaceship and sent to Earth. This sounds like sci-fi, almost religious. So you mean to tell me that the DNA originally came from a spaceship that was brought to Earth that began the evolutionary process? What's interesting is that he's not the only one that holds this view. Richard Dawkins, the new atheist, holds a similar view. Now, Alvin Plantinga, the analytic philosopher from Notre Dame University, makes this observation when he says, evolution has a deep, religious connection, deep connections with how we understand ourselves at the most fundamental level, that evolution is by no means religiously or theologically neutral. It takes faith to believe that a spaceship brought DNA, and it begs to question, where did they get their DNA? You have to have a beginning at some point. Now, this is an artist depiction of a gentleman by the name of Albert, or his name is Schleiermacher. I had to study him in my historical theology, and he is known as the father of liberal Protestant theology. He believed that the Bible is not to be taken as a historical account, that the virgin birth, all these things are myths or allegories, and that there is nothing historical or factual about scripture. It's really about the experience that we receive from it. Now in 1829, Albert Schleiermacher, I can't even say his name, came up with this idea when he wrote a pact with science as to how theologians and scientists should relate. And he makes this statement, theologians should let rocks be rocks, and let God be God. In other words, the Bible is not a science book. We should let science be science and let the Bible be the Bible. And you see this narrative or this attempt by the Christian community to try to make the Bible palatable to the modern mind. And what it usually involves is that anytime there's a conflict between science and scripture, automatically we choose a different hermeneutic. 
or a different way of interpreting the Bible to match up with science. This is the trajectory of how theology has typically gone, and he is the epitome of this. And again, I quote from Alvin Plantinga, who's an analytic philosopher. He said, should we change the view of the Bible every time it conflicts with science? And this is what he says, the belief that when there is a conflict, the problem must invariably lie with our interpretation of scripture so that the correct course is to modify that understanding in such a way as to accommodate current science is every bit as deplorable as the opposite error. In other words, should we, as a community of faith, every time there is a point of contradiction between scripture and science, automatically assume, oh, it must be our understanding, let's change our interpretation. He says, no. And I want to give you a reason why. Here is Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and earth. First verse, first chapter of the entire Bible. Let's interpret this literally and do some exegesis. In the beginning refers to the beginning of time in the context. God is in the plural form, Elohim. When you look at it, created, bara, the Hebrew word means to literally create out of nothing, and the heavens and earth, when used together, refers to the entire universe. We are interpreting Genesis 1-1 literally, and let's put it together in a literal translation according to the Hebrew. In the beginning, the triune God created the universe from nothing, and this position has been held since the beginning of Christian theology. A literal interpretation. Now, there have been a lot of theories as to how the universe began crazy theories, theories that were held by the scientific community. And it wasn't until 1920 when Edwin Hubble was looking out his 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson that he saw this. He saw that the galaxies were emanating a red light. Red light is, or the waves of red light are longer than blue waves, so this indicated, he postulated, and is later confirmed in 1960 when they found radiation from the very beginning of the universe, that the universe is expanding. The universe is expanding away from us and from each other, and the idea is that if the universe is expanding, if you go back in time, you can get to a place where the whole universe can be wound up to a single point. It's called singularity, in which the entire universe can be collapsed to a single point that is a billionth of the size of a proton, just very small. For all intents and purposes, modern cosmology today believes that the universe came from nothing. Imagine that. Science has come all the way around, and the literal reading of Genesis 1-1 actually is the most scientifically accurate picture today. The Big Bang Theory openly invites the concept of creation. This is from Fred Hoyle, British mathematician and cosmologist. And here's the literal translation again. In the beginning, the triune God created the universe from nothing. And this is from Robert Jastrow, a NASA cosmologist. For the scientist who has lived by faith and reason, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) The church held this position of a literal reading of Genesis 1-1, and science has validated it. Could it be the same for the rest of Genesis? What if, if time lasts long enough, there is another scientific discovery, just like cosmology, that validates the creation account? And are we going to change our hermeneutics and our positions every time it conflicts with science? Genesis 1.1 shows us that if we're faithful to Scripture and hold our position, it may not happen in this life on planet Earth. But I believe when we get to heaven, to the ultimate dimension, that science and scripture will harmonize perfectly. The same power in Genesis, the same word bara in Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Same word in creation as in redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How do we know the way that God's power works? It is in the personal transformation that you and I experience in conversion. You were this way before Jesus, like in our children's story, and you're this way afterwards. And I praise God, it doesn't take him millions of years in that creative process. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your creative power. We thank you that we can be faithful to scripture and we are the first to admit that there are conflicts with science, but we acknowledge you as the God of science and we pray that you would help us to hang on and have faith and trust you with the things that we do not understand. For we ask these things in his name, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.